The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, May 3rd, the Has Amy Schumer Bought the Beauty Myth Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, who is now Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. Thank you. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hello. Um, so, guys, guess who was at the restaurant where I had dinner last night? Who's that? Ivanka and Jared. Shut the fuck up. Definitely. The full Javanka. Tell me. me. Yeah, the full Javanka. The weird thing was nobody talks to them. It's kind of an interesting (laughs) phenomenon. The both times I've seen them. Because they are celebrities, but it's not the same celebrities, I think, because they're in D.C. and it's kind of a liberal place. Nobody walks up to them and is like, hey, guys, wow, nice to meet you. It's kind of they just sit there awkwardly while at the adjoining tables are all the giant Secret Service people, you know, having to eat this, like, ridiculously small plates that they serve at this particular (laughs) restaurant and so, huh, it's are, are they? Um, I have a couple questions, many questions. <laughs> are they like in the scrum of things in the restaurant, or are they back like in a special area? In the scrum, they are not in a special area, but they sit side by side, which is unusual. Okay, that Most was my second. Don't sit that way. Yeah, what yeah. is the body language between them? How ha- happy slash unhappy? It's cute. I mean, they seem to be chatting. It's like, you know, marriage cute. So uh-huh. they're not like having animated date style conversations. They're chatting with each other. And the awkwardness is that they're kind of looking around, you know, because uh-huh. they are famous and people start to notice them after a while. But in the whole time I was there, nobody comes up to them. And it's a pretty small restaurant. So like one giant Secret Service guy has to sit like in the hallway by the bathroom. <laughs> It's just like these giant guys is what makes them so Mm -hmm. obvious because it's a place of little plates and there are these gigantic guys. And they're both tiny people in in a certain key sense. Like they're both very, very slight and so I'm sure that exactly. was added to the contrast. Yes. Then. Tiny people, small plates, giant Secret Service guys. Um, anyway, it was exciting or not. Uh, <laughs> I want to get going. But first, I want to say so many of you wrote us about our P-tape edition saying we didn't say that they were peeing on the obe- that that the prostitutes that Trump did or didn't hire or the Russians hired were peeing on the bed where supposedly the Obamas had slept. Now, I think that we did, but we just didn't emphasize it strongly enough. So I don't know that I want to apologize, but it did make a lot of our listeners annoyed at us. And and so I'm not 100 percent sure how to respond, except to say we should have emphasized it more. I'm not really sure how to respond, but just letting you guys know that a lot of you pointed it out. Okay, so our topics for today, I Feel Pretty, a new Amy Schumer movie, but really what it says about modern day beauty standards. That's what we're going to discuss. Second, Incel, involuntary celibates, Alex Manassian, the guy who rammed his van into 10 people in Toronto, and most of them were women, was supposedly an involuntary celibate, a man who thinks women are denying him sex. We discussed this movement and what it's about. And finally, Janelle Monet just released her third album, Dirty Computer. We discuss her very particular place in the culture. And then in our Slate Plus segment... Noreen, what are we talking about? We are talking about whether Michelle Wolf's discussion of Sarah Huckabee Sanders at the White House Correspondence Center last weekend was sexist. Yes, I'm looking forward to that discussion. Have lots of thoughts. Okay, so I Feel Pretty is a movie starring Amy Schumer as Renee, a girl who conks her head one day and wakes up believing she has become a supermodel hot even though absolutely nothing about her is different. The movie irritated so many feminist critics for many reasons, but one is that it enables beauty standard denialism. (laughs) This false idea that we actually don't really care about looks anymore, what really matters, and confidence and healthfulness and other virtuous things. So we're going to talk for a minute about the movie, and then we will pivot to talk about modern beauty standards. Um, Noreen, I am hoping you saw the movie and can tell us just basically a little bit about Renee and the Soul Cycle accident and just kind of the gestalt of the movie to place people who haven't seen it. Sure. I saw the movie. I hated the movie. I'm here to tell you about the movie. Um, the movie functions, as far as I can tell, as one big Soul Cycle ad. Uh Renee is played by Amy Schumer, um, and she, despite being tan and blonde and and adhering to some, like, broad category version of attractiveness, spends her whole life focused on how unattractive she is. And yet she has built her entire life around the beauty industry. She works for a company called Lily LeClaire, which is sort of a meant to be a high-end uh, kind of American cosmetics company. She... Um, 
as a member of the two-person online team, a really realistic thing, um, <laughs> is is uh, situated in a basement in Chinatown rather than the company's Fifth Avenue headquarters. Um, she she really you know wants to find love. She spends her evenings doing you know YouTube beauty tutorials, um, and she, then she watches the movie Big. Um, which I have not seen, but but I understand that there's some sort of like a wishing well situation. She goes out in a storm, wishes to be beautiful, goes to Soul Cycle, uh, and has her second embarrassing Soul Cycle accident. But this time at Soul Cycle, when she conks her head, she believes that she is in some way physically transformed. Um, it seems as if what she thinks has happened to her is that she's gotten much thinner. Um, but that a- is a- not true. Well, Amy you Schumer and all has the critics re- made that up. I did not make that up. True. Amy Schumer this- is rebuking this, but when you yeah. watch the way she like looks at her body and talks about her body, it's totally. I mean, I think it might be that she believes her face has changed as well. But um, there, there are a lot of things where it's clear that. Like when she's touching her thighs, she's touching a smaller surface area than, you know, I, I don't think I'm making this up. No, this and I, I agree with you. And, and I think it's crazy to me that Amy Schumer denies that there's a physical transformation because she has this relationship with two close friends and she acts like they won't even recognize mm-hmm. her. She thinks that her boyfriend won't recognize her after she retransforms, spoiler alert. And so clearly it's. In, not just implied, clearly part of the story is that as far as she can, she's concerned, she's had a complete physical transformation mm-hmm. and doesn't look anything like her original self. But the but the message that they are pushing about this is that actually, no, she just sees her same form, you know, in a more positive light, that she has learned confidence. And so anyway, so, so once she undergoes whatever this transformation is, she is insanely confident and behaves as if she were sort of model hot and that is played for laughs sometimes where you know she's seeing herself very differently than the way that the world is but ultimately she gets ahead not because of her looks but because of the ease with which she moves through the world so the message is meant to be um you know like just just love yourself ladies and also go to soul cycle which spoiler alert she's shown doing like the happy ending of the movie is her like trucking away on the soul cycle bike so that's my summary of, of I Feel Pretty. <laughs> and everything was in that summary. It's so, did, so you hated it for the same reason that, that the critics hated it. I mean, that, that launched the whole debate about it because you felt like it was embracing a false message. It was pretending like it was espousing something about inner confidence, but actually it was perpetuating uh, beauty ideals and, and, and the idea that we actually, that it is like thinness or some other kind of like fitness which is which is what makes you virtuous and to- get ahead. Totally. I mean it's also um it's also situated within entirely within the world of the beauty industry, right? So it doesn't actually break down beauty ideals. It just sort of like tells you that she needs to learn to navigate her way within this world better. Um and it also ultimately sort of it's it's also in addition to being a soul cycle ad, sort of like a Dove beauty ad, right? Like the the fancy beauty company sort of embraces the everyday girl and tries to monetize people's flaws while also sort of telling them that they're like bad and need makeup. Um, so I bristled at it on that level. Um, Amanda Hess wrote what I thought was a really smart critique of it in the New York Times, um, where she was also focused on the just the degree to which like this is. Um, it's a capitalist enterprise here, like that what what is being shown um that like you're you are so totally um your mind is so totally taken over by these these images that and and the only way to sort of get out of it is to buy the product that they're offering um and I think it just exists within that universe. It doesn't really critique it at all. It sort of is patting itself on the back for being like super progressive um as compared to the the comparison that a lot of people have drawn is Shallow Hal, which was this infamous um Gwyneth Paltrow movie, I don't know maybe fifteen years ago where Jack Black um believes believes that she's actually an, an obese woman but he sees her as Gwyneth Paltrow you know like Gwyneth Paltrow the movie star and falls in love with her and the joke there um is that this man has been able to like see past imagery but as Amanda pointed out actually in a weird way like this is regressive like it it puts the onus on the woman for like getting past the beauty standards like she's the hold up like you know she should be able to to overcome everything that the culture is showing at her 
throwing at her. And the problem is like her inability to have confidence. I don't know. What did you think? What did you guys think? Oh, my God. (laughs) I just I think this is a prime example of women putting the responsibility of all of feminism on every project that every woman does. To me, this movie read as an extended SNL skit, which was about not like a woman, a very particular woman who was obsessed with a ridiculous makeup company. And so and then there's this extended joke, which is probably should have been, you know, an hour and not however long it was. But I thought was like consistently funny, like nothing about her was different. And yet she had this idea that she was really hot. I don't think there was any question that this movie had like a serious point to make about inner beauty and inner confidence. And yet everyone was like profoundly disappointed by it. It's it's a movie about a woman who's who's beauty obsessed, who who goes through this like it, it was making fun of the idea of transformations. It wasn't sincerely embracing the idea that she had transformed in any way. It was like a little makeup, like the message of a makeup company, just put this on or that on and you will be a completely different person or soul cycle like as a religious experience. Like you go there and you fucking rent on a bicycle. It's like it's making fun of the kind of like the 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 the, the vapidity of transformative language in our in our culture. See I, okay it, so no I'm somewhere between the two of you because I agree with you, um, Hannah, that I found it funny. To me, it was, I think because I'd read before I saw the movie, I'd read a lot of negative responses to it, most of which I sympathize with, certainly uh, maybe a little bit more before I saw the movie. You know, like I read those reviews and and critiques and I was like, yes, I think that's what I'm going to think. And I did to a certain extent, but I also did find it funny um, and I... Uh, there were things that I just thought, oh, this is, and I certainly don't think it's a soul cycle ad because soul cycle, soul cycle is clearly like, I'm amazed that they allowed them their name to be used because it makes it just seem like this is the most discriminatory, you know, bunch of bitches that you're going to have a horrible <laughs> time there because they're really snooty and really discriminatory and don't go anywhere near those people. Um, and I do feel like there were certain times when the message was, just forget all this stuff. This stuff is not going to make you happy. However, there was a giant logical inconsistency because I agree with you, Noreen, that it doesn't ever, it, that, I, that for me, it, I agree with you, Noreen, that there clearly was this idea that the world treats you badly, but if you just, you know, fix yourself inside and just have more confidence, then everything will be fine. And clearly that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Um, she was still being judged. She just was oblivious. And yeah, obliviousness is an option. It's an option that I've generally chosen in life. And it can get you to a certain point. But you're still going to be crapped on. It's not going to stop the crap from raining down. And I also think one more thing, too, that it one thing that's felt very uh, problematic to me is that even when things were shown to be a problem, it was never the problem of the people who were doing the wrong thing. So she has an issue, you know, especially at the beginning when when we're being shown, oh, this is her life. These are the problems that she faces. She doesn't get served in bars. Okay, that's minor. But it was never the fault of the people who won't bloody serve her. Like there was never any critique of those people. There was never any like, that seems like that's perfectly fine. Well, actually, it's not. It's not okay for soul cycle people to be able to bitches and to not have shoes that fit actual people like that's not okay. And nobody ever that never seems to be a critique that's made in the movie. I also just think that it sort of exposes or or um, reifies what I see as just this consistent um, problem in Amy Schumer's work. So I think she's got a weird take on the concept of the basic bitch, right? So when her show first came out, came out it seemed like it was this really um, radical critique of what society does to femininity. She has this recurring character who's just like every girl at home, like kind of chugging wine, wishing she was prettier and like texting people. <laughs> and and you sort of... <laughs> that's and, and it's funny, right? But she's just mind the same joke over and over again and it's gotten less and less funny because it's less and less original and and I have at least started to believe less and less that she has any real critical distance from it that she's actually critiquing um, the broader societal forces and not working out some very very complicated feelings that she herself has about femininity which can of course be part of the joke but I just think that like Amy Schumer like I don't know I don't she's got some not worked out feelings and I just don't find them that funny. Like she's not precise enough anymore to Mm -hmm. be funny. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I felt like the same joke over and over again, that this girl isn't as hot as she thinks she is. 
just didn't do it for me. So anyway. I, I can go that far with you. I had that same thought thinking, like, Amy Schumer has to get smarter and more precise. She had one season where everyone said her first season that she was, like, a great critic of feminism because she had sort of, a like, real ugly takes on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she kind of didn't move forward from there and get sharper and more precise. So I, I think that's true. Let's just spend the last sort of two minutes talking about this idea of beauty standard denialism. Like, what are beauty standards today and have they gotten harsher? Like the idea that um, that we are doing all sorts of things just to make ourselves look better, but saying that we're doing them because they make us healthier. Like the way Weight Watchers changed its slogan, so it's all about eating healthier, all the exercise that we do all the time. This idea that we're all about virtue and healthfulness when actually these are just new and more tortuous ways to, to for women to 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 worry about how they look upper class ways right which is a point that Amanda has made in her essay about this movie yeah and soul cycle would be the prime I don't do soul cycle but it would be the prime example of that like it's all about virtue and being good and transforming yourself and being strong and fit but actually you're just trying to be hotter I mean maybe I don't know I I it, that sounds quite convincing but I'm not not sure that's totally true. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, clearly there are, I mean, it's interesting to me, Hannah, that you mentioned class, because clearly it always has felt to me that what this this dream body is, you know, when you say this is the body that everyone should have, you know, it's actually a kind of a white middle class body. And it's, you know, it's simply not attainable for some people, no matter how much they deny themselves and how much discipline they they apply so there's there's definitely a um, like a I don't know there's some outside forces are, are being brought to bear here, but I don't know if it's about uh, you know telling ourselves one thing and doing I, I just don't even know about that. Yeah, I mean I think what's going on in sort of beauty standards now is that you're meant to be naturally sort of glowing, like everyone looks like they've just come back from a yoga retreat, right? Inner glow rather than you know you've shellacked on some awesome looking. Um, you know, foundation, foundation, or um, a smoky eye, <laughs> like uh, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, and I think you know, I guess my take on this is a as a victim of this culture. I have been to the occasional Soul Cycle class. I will admit that I have wasted my money in that spectacular fashion. Um, is that I do think that in some ways the messages that we're getting about beauty are healthier right that like the idea that you should be strong and fit and like eat your leafy greens and you know your chia puddings and like Mm -hmm. all that stuff is probably better than when women's magazines were basically publishing pro-anorexia guides like telling you to like you know spit on your food or whatever before you ate it like that seems like a change for the better that's not to say that it's not any more punishing and in fact even more difficult to attain this kind of um, perfect inner beauty because the you know the truth is that like it's really hard like you can you can do all the things that Amy Schumer's character is shown doing and you won't necessarily have that sort of um, just easeful look about you. Yeah, I will say one more thing too that. I do think there's a Marxist analysis, like we have just found a way to kind of reify things that are expensive and accessible to the upper classes. Um, But we've also democratized beauty standards, certainly much more than when I was a kid. You know, as my friend Margaret says, who does everyone want to look like? Beyonce is who Mm -hmm. everyone wants to look like. It is there is a sort of wider array of people who we think of as beautiful and aspire to be and think of as the ideal. So that that has changed. Mm -hmm. um, But simultaneously, there's this other like you know buy expensive foods and go to expensive classes and then and go to retreats and everything will be great yeah i think it's very expensive to be the best possible version of yourself like there are some things like there was some article recently about how nose jobs are way down right because people don't mind a strong nose right now right so certain standards like that have have um you know lifted but you it's easier to have a strong nose if the rest of you is like <laughs> glistening so right <laughs> Right. All right. Well, listeners, why don't you tell us the most absurd thing you've ever done to be beautiful? I'm always curious about that, if people are willing to be honest about it, either the most expensive, the most money you've spent, just something that you look at now as like, boy, I really got caught up in that. Uh, I would love to know. And we don't have to use your name. I'm just curious of the kinds of things that people do for beauty. I wonder what mine is. (laughs) I'm trying to think. (laughs) It might be SoulCycle. (laughs) 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. All right, let's move on to our next topic, incel. Alex Manassian, the 25-year-old suspected of plowing his van into a crowded street and killing 10 people, most of them women, supposedly made an FBI post right before the murders saying the incel rebellion has already begun. Incels are involuntary celibates, men who believe women are denying them sex and who are really angry about it. We've talked about the manosphere on this show before. Many incels belong to an especially ugly corner of it because they advocate extreme violence against women. Now, I will say, guys, it is hard. The Reddit shut down its incel uh, corner, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that for a minute uh, in a minute. But um, but it is but you can find posts here and there. And I don't know about you guys. I did spend a lot of time like looking through incel posts, trying to digest them and understand what they were about. That is not a pleasant experience. Um, They really, really do hate women like it's a sense of entitlement and rage and just extreme, extreme anger. I've looked at a lot of these men's groups like men going their own way, which is another form of celibacy. There's all kinds of degrees of celibacy among in the manosphere. Um, But these guys are the real angry ones. Did you guys read any of their posts? Yeah. One thing that really struck me about them. um, So so the big difference between them and the the rest of the manosphere, the manosphere um, has this phrase that you've been red pilled when you see the way that like the feminists and the women are making, you know, the world difficult for you. But I think the manosphere sees hope of sort of reclaiming what is rightfully yours, whether through pickup artistry or whatever. Whereas the incel community has something called blackpilled, which as far as I can understand it is sort of like you've realized that there is no hope. And and when you are in a totally hopeless state about the way the world is, that's when you turn to violence and anger. And a lot of these men take um, Elliot Rogers, who uh, was the young man who shot up a college campus and explicitly said, you know, that, that it was... Um, motivated in large fact in large part because these women wouldn't sleep with him these these sort of pretty college girls wouldn't sleep with him he's like their saint he they you know they they have devotional posts to him he's um, the supreme gentleman yeah is that is that the actual phrase that they I use? believe so mm-hmm. which is just so creepy right um and he's such an interesting figure because you know he he was sort of handsome and um to me he's i mean whatever he did a horrible violent evil thing and so i shouldn't have any sympathy for him but there is this way in which like if he just waited a few years and and like worked on some things maybe life would have gone a little bit differently but i think they look at someone like him who who isn't sort of um ugly or or obvious you know and he was from a well-off family and and still the world was cruel to him so it makes a little bit of sense why they would elevate him and and then obviously he chose to act violently which is something they advocate. But just like the basics of it are so unusual and insane. Like the way that they talk, the the sex is an entitlement mm-hmm. idea, you know, mm-hmm. this idea. Well, okay, a couple of things. First is that one thing that was interesting to me, they have this whole idea of the Chads and the Stacys. Those mm-hmm. are the perfect people. And, you know, they have this imagery of women as all kind of like, I mean, they sound like women from porn. You know, they say it's like women from sororities, but it seems like an even exaggerated version of blonde women from sororities or the Stacys. That's not like a feminist world. On the one mm-hmm. hand, you think, oh, they're reacting to the kind of take women taking over the world and the rise of feminism. But that's like a retrograde vision they have of the world. That's a world created by men in which women are just like bimbos who are endlessly available to them. It's the patriarchy, they're re- the world, the patriarchy, you know, fantasizes about that they're responding to. It's not feminism. So it's a, it's super confusing to me on, on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the other kind of side of beauty, the the sort of beauty standards culture, right? That that you would, that the women available to you would be these pornified sort of stereotypical women. There was um, there was a really interesting piece in the London Review of Books, like maybe a month ago or something, called um, "Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex?" Um, and this woman sort of sort of explores why it is that these men are unable to sort of 
like look beyond that kind of image of a woman and like look at the women who might actually be sexually available to them. Right. Like not and not everyone is sexually attractive, but um, but that's part of what's going on with these guys. Right. Is that like in lieu of actually looking to people in their real life and people who might be willing to entertain the idea of dating them, they have this crazy image of what women are. Yeah, and she asks a very interesting question in that piece. It's Amya Srinivasan and does anyone have the right to sex? And it's, I mean, in some ways it does make you feel like the Susan Brown Miller view of the world that all sex is rape, that whenever you get into the questions of sex and desire, women end up on the wrong side of that question. That that's kind of the question she was asking for me is, is like if you if you if you have a sort of sex is enti- like where did they get this idea that sex is an entitlement and 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 um, I don't know I didn't know how to I didn't know how to exit that piece like am right. I supposed to exit that piece by saying forget it like we you know just just opt out of sex and sex sexiness um, as a part of feminism and this and sex positivity is just an impossible uh, quandary because it lands you right back into this place of incels when women have sexual agency it it triggers a backlash like this except like that that was the problem that I had like this is a grotesque world like a, fas- a fascinatingly it's a fascinating place to look at anthropologically it's a terrifying vile place in every other way and the thing one of the things that's so scary and frightening about it is so what do we do because i mean i i have no sympathy in a certain sense i certainly have no sympathy with a sort of violent response to this situation but i know if when you want to have a partner and you don't have a partner and you don't seem you know the things that you're doing to get a partner don't seem to be working it's really frustrating and sad making and it's not a good place to be in and clearly the way to to deal with that is maybe therapy maybe talking with friends maybe you know there are various things you can do one of them is not going on a violent rage Another one that is not going to help you is, you know, getting becoming part of a movement that just, you know, makes a feature of hatred. Those are not going to help you. Those are not going to solve your problems and your sadness and your frustrations. So you kind of want to redirect. But I mean, I get the place that they're in. And it's not necessarily even about like, you know, misunderstanding gender relations. Like there's there's so many... it is just a sort of a basic human frustration and 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 cause of sadness that men seem to be uh, metabolizing very differently. Exactly. Than women, right? Exactly. I just exactly. want to read you guys one funny tweet that speaks to what June just said, which came up when I was researching from Ashley Nicole Black Panther. I'm going to start a subreddit for women who can't get laid. We'll probably just talk about hobbies and TV shows we like, <laughs> and then not kill anyone. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Men and women metabolize it differently. Yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah. But I'm really interested in the. Con- conservative critique here, actually, of the underlying situation that got us here, which I do not endorse. I want to say that the, that at the outset um, that 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 I um, that I don't think it offers solutions, um, but it does diagnose, I think, an actual problem. Um, so there was this book that came out, I don't know, in the fall or something called Cheap Sex by Mark Regnerus. What is it? Cheap? Cheap. Cheap, Cheap. sex. Um this is the sexual marketplace idea. Yes, yes, exactly. And and this is, I mean, he's not the first person to talk about this. Um, this is, I think, a big grossed out, that kind of thing. But um, this conservative critique is that, like, since the sexual revolution, we've basically, um, it, it's upended the idea that, like, okay, uh, you know, the, the way to get sex is to get married and then you partner up and you are in sort of this happier life, um, theoretically, although obviously a lot of those <laughs> marriages were super unhappy and uh, all kinds of problems with those. But when you um, remove that, then the women who um, women sort of have more agency and they are more likely to sleep with um, the men who are most attractive so that, you know, there becomes an inequality thing in the sexual marketplace and that um and and then the system becomes broken because not that not all women are actually behaving in that way. So all, you know, men and women are both having less sex than they want to. Um, and even people who are sort of having you know one off encounters or briefer encounters are not in these happy settled relationships. So that's the conservative critique, which I think is an interesting diagnosis and is not totally incorrect. But also, like the answer is obviously not. Let's go. Let's undo the sexual revolution. You know. So I don't know where that leaves us. 
I don't think they have. And I've read so many books about the sexual marketplace, including that one. <clears throat> I don't think there's any evidence that women are having sex with certain kinds of men and not other kinds of men. I think all we have evidence for is that people aren't getting married. Mm. We don't really have evidence about who's sleeping with who. That's an assumption that the sexual marketplace people make. And I think, you know, they do fewer people getting married means that men at the bottom of the economic scale are left out of marriage. But the idea that they're left out of sex. I don't think anyone has any evidence about that. So they could be getting tons of sex and then, then, you know, having babies, but just not, or women choosing not to marry them or them choosing not to marry the women. It's hard to say where the intention is. That is true. And so men are left roleless and like that all needs to be figured out. You know, why the only option for men who feel they don't have a role in a family or work is for them to be really pissed off. You know, like whose fault is that? And how did that happen? There's lots of other options besides just being super pissed off. Um, well, there so, is. There, I don't know. There is evidence that um, you know, for young people, rates rates of sexual activity just in general have gone down. Um, but one interesting thing I saw sort of bopping around on Twitter yesterday was this chart that showed um, that, in fact, the number of sort of uh, like people in their twenties and thirties who had reported no sexual activity, so basically adult virgins. Um, is actually it hasn't gone up and that in fact there's a slight decline since the 90s and so then you say what's different okay like there are these communities where people uh, find each other and get angry right like we think of community as being unassailably a a good thing and yet really the the major difference between now and the 1990s is that there are these hubs for people to to like praise mass killers in you know and connect it to their own like inability to get laid That's what I think is different. If you read these incel posts, is that a narrative has gelled among the incel people taken from sort of civil rights slash victimhood culture in which they've redefined their personal condition as a sociological worldview using language like entitlement and civil rights language and language of power and oppression, which is not appropriate to their particular situation. And then they get locked in this and they don't, you know, it's hard for them to get out. Like it's hard for them to get out of that story. It seems giant and overwhelming. But what do you think of the idea that, um, I mean, that, that, that access to sexual partners should be a fundamental human right. You know, um, this is this is actually a weird place where the left and the right might kind of meet um, or, or maybe so far. Left. Like when you get into the idea of like legalizing prostitution, that is in some ways related to this idea. Right. There was some crazy idea about there being a, a tax on the sexual wealthy to like, you know, share their wealth with the, with the sexually poor. Um, but I do think like. It's it's worth entertaining the notion of what it does to human beings when, as June was saying, when they are unable to sort of find that kind of connection or release. I think it's you can address it at the level of loneliness and companionship mm-hmm. um, and human connection and never at the level of sex. Like women will never win in a marketplace where you decide that sex is an entitlement. But I think in a marketplace which does address – I mean – Brit, the UK has a minister of loneliness. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. That's yep. like a thing, right, June? Mm-hmm. So, newly, so I think we named. do recognize. Yeah, <laughs> there's. It's like we recognize that at some level, modern society has created like um, new new opportunities for extreme loneliness. But Jesus, sexual entitlement. Although all the young people these days, and we all work with young people, um, are really into the sex worker kind of mm-hmm. positivity. So maybe there's something in that we need to explore. Sex robots. Sex robots is the answer. I, yeah. mean, I do. I do. I do just want to push back a little bit that like these guys do have a community, right? Like they 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 have friends of some kind, although maybe not friends. I don't know how you would define that. But um, there is there is something different. There's a different kind of human connection that you get from a romantic situation than you get from other situations. And mm-hmm. even if that makes us uncomfortable to think about in this instance. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine I'll get much response for this. But if any of our listeners have ever had sympathetic leanings <laughs> towards the incel life, um, but then have veered away from it, because I know we have a lot of male listeners, I would be curious about navigating that psychology. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Janelle Monet is out with her newest album, Dirty Computer. I guess she's the dirty computer infected with the virus. Um, 
<laughs> June will explain it to me, uh, someone not quite operating under the normal rules. Um, she was a friend and collaborator with Prince and for good reason, uh, occupying the space of someone very creative, elusive, channeling different strains of the culture, but hard to locate the actual person underneath. Um, so, June, I need a little education on Janelle Monet, and I'm sure some of our listeners do. The movie she starred in, the songs people might know, um, and what song we should all play for ourselves on our walk home today. Well, Janelle Monet, as I'm someone who these days is not terribly plugged into music or really pays much attention to music, she is nevertheless one of those people who has penetrated my consciousness because she's one of these multi-hyphenate people. She is a model. She's a cover girl model. She's been on a ton of TV ads uh, she was one of the stars of Moonlight and Hidden Figures, two mainstream movies about black people that a lot of white people saw. And so I think she has a higher profile because of that. Even though she is a musician and this is her third album, I suspect, and this could be my uh, particular, you know, not mu- not being into music these days, biases speaking, but she's a musician who's least known for her music In a certain sense, she's most known for her look. I mean, she's incredibly striking. She has long been associated uh, with an androgynous style. She loves to wear tuxedos. She loves to wear suits. She has a body style that suits that. Uh, As we had a great story in Slate this week, she has a long affair with suspenders, as we call them in the United States. Um, What do you call them in Britain? Braces. Braces? Yes. Really? Yes. (laughs) Um, And she, you know, she's this package that like a lot of people know her for different kinds of things but she just released an album called Dirty Computer as we've said when and along with it as is the style these days she released an emotion picture which is essentially <laughs> a, like a 50 minute video um it's a whole story it's a movie it's a it it plays the songs uh and so in a sense there are what we used to call music videos uh but there's a through line there's you know and it's I thought really watchable, like it's a 50 minute thing. And I'm one of those people who can watch 13 hours of a TV show over a weekend, but I can't watch more than five minutes of a web video. And I very happily and very sort of rapt attention watched this emotion picture, uh, which is a sort of sci-fi epic in which Janelle Monet, Tessa Thompson, who is an actress who is often rumored to be her girlfriend, and we'll get to her personal sexual identity momentarily. And Amanda model Jason Aaron uh, kind of have this this loving threesome. Um, it's, 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 we'll get to that movie in a minute because it's very complicated. But And she has this new album, Dirty Computer, which and, and for which she did a lot of publicity, you know, the cover story of Rolling Stone and talked about her sexuality and put a label on it at last. Um, but I guess we should listen to some music. Let's hear, uh, let's hear Django Jane, which is a song from the album. It's been out as a single. Do we still call them that? Um, and I, I, I feel like this is a key part of the album because in this album, and as she has for many years, it's a very overtly political message. I mean, with not very much subtlety, honestly. But she is, you know, somebody who is being a mainstream star who is also saying very explicitly political, uh, sharing very explicitly political messages in pop songs. So, Django Jane. Yeah, yeah, this is my palace. Champagne and my chalice. I got it all covered like a wedding band. Wonderland, so my alias is Alice. And we gonna start a motherfucking pussy riot. Or we gonna have to put them on a pussy diet. Look at that, I guarantee I got them quiet. Look at that, I guarantee they all inspired. A-Town made it out there. Straight out Kansas City, yeah, we made it out there. Celebrated. I love her voice. So her sexuality, which comes up a little bit in this song, uh, there was a lot of press about that. Yeah. She just came out as pansexual. Right. I, I have questions about pansexual. Is pansexual just a, like a kinder, more generous way of saying bisexual because it includes everybody? It, it end runs the gender binary that bisexual dives into. Is that why pansexual was the was the way to go in her case? I, I think so. I mean, I, it, pansexual, I think one of the reasons it's a desirable term is that it's not quite so clearly defined. I mean, I think basically it's another way of saying queer. Uh, and I think it's also seen as being much more trans inclusive. She, you know, she made a statement um, which actually is both just kind of a list of things, but also, you know, it is does feel significant that someone who is 
you know, very well known, a star saying, she said, I want young girls, young boys, non-binary, gay, straight, queer people who are having a hard time with their sexuality, dealing with fe- dealing with feeling ostracized or bullied for just being their unique selves to know I see you. And, you know, that's a very clear message. She also said that she's had relationships with men and women. So in some ways, she's been super clear. She won't talk about her relationship with Tessa Thompson, which actually feels reasonable to me because that's talking for someone else who also is, uh, you know, a very high profile actor and has her own career to think of because that that is still a career killer for at the very top of the field. Um, and yet I have to say some people were still not satisfied with her statement. Uh, she has avoided making statements in the past and that frustrates people, even though she has has always been very different. Uh, and sometimes just being different is what upsets people and what, you know, causes people to be ostracized. You don't actually have to be anything. You just have to be different. But what is her resistance? Like, she obviously embodies a totally different kind of sexiness. Like, mm-hmm. that she always has. It's not mm-hmm. that she's not sexy or putting off sexy. She's just, like, androgynous mm-hmm. sexy or sexy in a different way. Or I, it's, it's, it's hard to put your finger on. It's just, like, not sexy in the usual heterosexual, you know, I'm doing it for the male gaze way, but it's still really sexy. Um, or it's not but exclusively then she, that. Is it sexy? So this is my – Janelle Monae has always sort of left me cold. Huh. And one of her videos, and I think it's called, I think it's the pink video from mm-hmm. this new one, where she's sort of like, it's a song that's basically about vaginas. Like mm-hmm. she, uh, she's wearing these pants that are like vagina pants. Yeah, they are vagina vul- vul- pants. Vul- is what pants, they're called. I would say. Yeah. Um, they're for sale now, Noreen. By the way, <laughs> okay. But Actually, I'm wearing some. You can't see me, Hannah, but I'm wearing them. Now. Pink frilled uh, harem pants, let's say. And Tessa Thompson, um, you know, sort of sticks her head out the middle of it, and there, and she's just like, it's so unsubtle. And she's she's like, hey, look at me. I'm I'm being weird but sexy because it's about sex, but it's sexy and and it's weird and and. I just feel like she, in, not even just about sex, but just like her weirdness, her futurism, her like I'm kind of different thing has always felt somewhat constructed to me. Like that that she like almost was making a joke of the idea of of being a lesbian, but not quite making a joke. Like she was sort of taking it seriously as like this phantasmagoric thing about vaginas. And I don't know. I just like there's always felt and still feels, frankly, to me like. She just doesn't quite she can't sort of let go of herself. And so she's constructed this elaborate like um, universe around being like the weird different one. Like she's the heir to prince kind of thing. But she just can't quite uh, be sort of loose with herself. And that comes to through to me. And then but then one of the things that was interesting reading about um, her background, um, which she's done a lot of press around that as well during the rollout of this album is that she is from um, a really like close-knit big family in you know a not great part of Kansas City it sounds like um, a lot of her relatives are super Christian and would be or are disapproving of her lifestyle and I think that probably has a lot to do with maybe why she's been so um, reticent to come out but also maybe just this clear internal like Distancing, distancing that she needs to have. She had to construct this whole alter ego to explore it. We should, yeah. So she has had this alter ego, Cindy Mayweather, who was, I guess, the sort of the subject of her first movie, and she's an android. And in the past, before she made these statements uh, about her, you know, which is giving herself a label, um, she said she only dates androids, and androids are others, and that can be, you know, defined anyway. And the other thing that androids do and don't do is have feelings. So. I mean, I think this whole idea of her constructing an image, which every single person yeah. who's successful in the music business does, like that's hers. That's her point of differentiation. She is this androgynous figure who is, to me, super striking and to me, very sexy. Like, yeah, that particular thing with the head and the vagina <laughs> pants or the vulva pants, that is not particularly sexy. But there are other places where like women are writhing or, you know, she's making out with Tessa Thompson. Her, their characters are making out. That's hot. Like, there is definite hotness in Janelle Monet. I think it, I mean, it's funny when you said she's rejecting them. I think she's just got a, just a much wider 
you know, she's appealing to a much wider gaze than merely the male gaze. I mean, obviously, Beyonce doesn't just appeal to men. You know, women love Beyonce, and it's in part because of how she presents herself in that, you know, the way that she kind of dances with that male gazy kind of thing. And Janelle Monae is doing a very different dance. But I think there's definitely hotness to it. But I also know what, exactly what you mean about that machine-like coldness. And it is it, there's a sadness in why she feels that, you know, that she has she's put so much distance between her persona and herself. Yeah, I guess it's like, how much can you intellectualize freakiness? You know, that to me is a central Janelle Monet question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> How much can you intellectualize freakiness? Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, once I read Her Family Was Christian, I kind of relaxed and understood the whole thing mm-hmm. a little bit better. Because I was thinking, like, why is it so easy for, like, Prince or David Boat? Why can they walk into this kind of pansexual, complicated um, uh, persona and and embody it and still feel warm and human. And why is it so much harder for her? And then I realized, oh, that's why it's so much harder for her. If you come from a big, you know, black Christian family and you're trying to be a kind of a really that is really different if she grew up that way. And that is really risky and scary to step out there in that way. So, yeah, you create an alter ego. It kind of made a lot more sense to me. And maybe Dirty Computer, maybe the next album won't be that. Dirty Computer musically is a lot warmer and and I think easier to listen to um, than her past albums. But, um, but also the concept of Dirty Computer still embodies like there is something wrong with me. I am Android. I am broken or something like that. Or I'm not quite fitting in. Although the story of the, of the emotion picture is that that's all bullshit, you know, that she's recognizing yeah. the bullshit of that. So, I mean, that's certainly a step. You know, this does feel like it's her truth. And, you know, for those people who said it's cynical to, to do this when you've got an album out, yes, it is, but that's how it's the music business. Yeah, that's June, always taking it back to the communists. It's capitalism, mm-hmm. man. It was made day it's this It's capitalism, week. man. Um, all right. Well, listeners, if you have thoughts about Janelle Monet, please share them with us. Double X Gabfest at Slate.com. We would love to hear your views. Let's do our recommendations. June, what do you have for us? So I want to recommend a novel uh, by it's called Ship It by Britta London. And she is a writer on the CW show Riverdale. Uh, and the novel is it's really interesting. It's hard to describe because it's about a young woman who lives in the middle of nowhere, but who really kind of, devo- and is very lonely. She, you know, goes to a high school where she really doesn't have any friends. And she kind of devotes her life to a TV show and writing fan fiction and kind of, you know, being a Tumblr head about this show. And she gets a chance to kind of interact with the people that she's writing fan fiction about. And it's like, I kind of thought, oh, it'll be some issues, you know, and I'm interested in these issues and yeah, well, it won't be a very good book. Well, first of all, it's a really good read and it really grapples with these issues of like, why do kids, especially kids, but why do people do this? Why, what do they get? What does it help them figure out? And is it exploitative and rude or maybe even, you know, treasonous almost for the actual human beings who play the characters that they write and fantasize about? Um, and also about, you know, about the TV industry. Does, in fact, the TV, uh, do people who make TV shows queer bait their viewers just to generate uh, attention and then not really, you know, and then kind of betray those storylines and those communities? So it fits a lot into a very readable package. And I really enjoyed it. And it is called Ship It by Britta London. All right. I've got a couple. A quick one is uh, the Alif Batuman story in the latest New Yorker about the Japanese rent-a-family industry. Super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. An industry I've been curious about for a long time. And you have to make it to the end because the end is very her. I've, I've talked about her novels on this show. Very original. Uh, very much lands at a place that you didn't think it was going. So that's really great. My second one, every once in a while, I become obsessed with some nonfiction feminist theory. And my latest one is The Evolution of Beauty by a guy named Richard Prum, who's an ornithologist, how Darwin's forgotten theory of mate choice shapes the animal world and us. And I love feminist-ish, feminist-adjacent. It's not explicitly feminist. It's kind of accidentally feminist rewriting of evolutionary biology, which in my gut, I think is a giant lie perpetuated by the patriarchy. So I'm always looking for intelligent um, pushbacks against that lie. 
Noreen, what do you have? Um, I also have a couple. Uh, the first, June, are you an Iris Murdoch head as a Brit? Not really. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, not a hater, but yeah. I'm not a head. I just read my first Iris Murdoch um, book, A Fairly Honorable Defeat, and I just found it to be a, like a fascinating document. I'm not quite sure what I think of her yet mm-hmm. either, but I like think that people who are interested in in novels and maybe bored with their current thing and haven't gone down this road should should read it too. It's like funny but also really dark. Mm-hmm. Um the plot is the basic plot is a happy married couple um and their the wife's sister and their somewhat troubled son um is the basic nuclear family and then there is just a chaos agent. This man who represents essentially evil comes into their life and everything unspools from there. And it's kind of a comedy of manners, but it's not exactly a comedy. It's also sort of about the big questions in life. Um so it like wet my appetite for seeing seeing a little bit more of what Iris Murdoch has to offer. I should just mention that she famously had a rivalry with her sister who was also a writer. Oh really? Who, I, the writer known as Anita Bruckner. I don't think that's her, you know. They obviously don't have the same name, but um, but so that's interesting that there's a sibling relationship. Yes, and the oh man, it becomes quite savage. Actually, a very complicated one as the as the novel progresses. Um, I will have to I will have to go down that Wikipedia page. I haven't really done that yet. Um, and then the second book I wanted to recommend is uh, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty, which was out I think yesterday. Um, I read it. So curious about that book. I'm so curious about it. I'm curious to hear what you think of it. I um, was totally wrapped by it. Um, So the premise is that this character who, you know, may or may not bear a lot of resemblance to Sheila Hetty um, is in her late 30s and contemplating whether or not she should have a baby. And it seems sort of clear from the outset that she doesn't really want one, but maybe she does. And it's a sort of like basic question that actually it felt radical to have someone really, really interrogate. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does it through a number of she's she's in a the character is in a happily coupled relationship and the man does not seem to want to have a kid. Um, and Hetty sort of frames the question essentially as you know, will my art be ruined if I become a mother? The idea that motherhood is this all-encompassing thing, that a lot of the mothers that I've talked to about this book are really upset about that sort of Mm. basic premise. Um, I just liked it as a way of thinking about, um, okay, what, what is the meaning of a life, you know, like what is, what is the meaning of life essentially? And then like how will your life change if you reach your 30s and then don't make this big dramatic shift in it? You know, like what what do the what is left to you in the remaining decades? How are you supposed to think about what it is that you're doing? And this ultimately becomes a book about like how do you relationship to her own mother and all kinds of things. Um, it's sort of funny in places, which I feel like a lot of the reviews have not picked up on. I think I've also loved reading about the book because everyone sort of it, it, it just like you know, it just gets under everyone's skin in a particular way. Um, so, yeah, Hannah, I would love to hear what you think about it. I I was really into it. A lot of my friends hated it. So, huh, maybe we can use that book the way we did with I Feel Pretty t- as a launching off point for the big discussion of the, de- the decision not to have a child. I feel like that book and Female Persuasion, the Meg Wolitzer book, are the two books out now that are squarely in our camp. Mm. Uh, so listeners, if you have views about whether you think we should discuss, it's hard to discuss books because mm-hmm. they're books and if people haven't read them, but it's easier to discuss them if you use them as launching points for a broader discussion about a central topic. So maybe we'll do that. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to our producer, Verilyn Williams, is also the fabulous Verilyn. Thank you. Thank you. Our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Thank you. So if you want to reach us, um, you can either email us, doublexgabfest at slate.com. We read those emails or tweet to all of us individually. It's easy at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen. We're very straightforward. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.